Good morning. How are we doing? Yeah, guess good. Better than when I was asked at the 9.15, I said, are we feeling fresh? And they said, no. <laughs> so, so that's a better response. <laughs> um, so we're continuing in our ser- sermon series. Just We started last week looking at the book of Ruth. And we're exploring that together. And I'm quite excited to be able to do that with you for a little while this morning. Last week, Andy kicked us off and set the scene for us and also introduced the first few verses of this book. And stylistically, he mentioned the fact that this is written kind of like a drama in four acts. And the, the verses that Andy shared from last week are almost like the opening of a theater production, almost like the curtains are still closed and the narrator's walked into the middle of the stage and then set the scene by telling what's going to happen next. And so just to remind us of where we are at this point, we're, we've been introduced to an ordinary family Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, are from Israel, but because of famine, they've moved to Moab to find food. They moved with their two sons, who have married to Ruth and Orpah. And sadly, over the course of the time there, all three men die. There was a side note. The, the, the sons didn't have a very good chance of survival because their names mean sickness and annihilation. So you don't call your sons half dead and mostly dead unless you're in a, a particularly challenging environment. But that's where, that's where our story begins. The narrator set the scene. We have three widowed women, and in a time of famine, in a lawless point in Israel's history. So it's quite a bleak scene to set at the outset. And we're reading from verse 8 on, and at this point, it's like the curtains open, because the characters begin to speak for themselves. So we'll take some time to read this now from chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. And um, as Andy mentioned last week, this is a, a book that's meant to be read and imaginatively. We're supposed to visualize ourselves in the story. So if you find it helpful, you might want to close your eyes as I read it, unless you're feeling tired. But why don't I read that for us now, and let's just invite God to speak to us as we do. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Am I, I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people, and her gods go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. 
So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So Naomi has found herself a widow beyond childbearing age with two daughters who are also widowed in a foreign land. It's quite a vulnerable situation. But also she's heard in amongst that, as we read last week, that the famine has potentially ended in her homeland. And so she sets out to go home to where she's from to hope to find hospitality amongst extended family. And she encourages her daughters to do the same thing. She says to them, go home, go to your family, remarry. You'll find a better chance of security in future with them than you would with me. But there's something really important about what Naomi prays over her daughters at the beginning of this section. She prays a specific word of blessing over them. And that word introduces a key theme that we then see build more and more throughout the rest of the story. She says this, may the Lord show you kindness. And that word kindness is actually not a particularly full translation from the original Hebrew. The original Hebrew word is the word hesed. So just, we're going to learn it together. So ready you going to say it back to me? Three, two, one. There you go, all done. So tomorrow you say, when someone says, what did you do yesterday? It's like, I learned some Hebrew. Chesed. You've got to say it with a sign at the start. Um, so this word is right at the center of the passage. And when we understand it, I think it unlocks the rest of this story. And so if it's important, then what does it mean? Well, the word has said features in most chapters of this book, as I said, and it is constantly repeated throughout the Old Testament, describing an attribute of God. It's a word which points beyond a nice gesture or moment and instead calls to the unshakable character of who God is. His head is something related to the character of God. Tim Mackey from Bible Project, who many of you might have come across some of what he does there, is a theologian, and he summarizes the word said like this. said combines the ideas of unconditional love, generosity, and enduring commitment. Unconditional love, generosity, and enduring commitment. So the hesed of God is a deeply committed, loyal love. It is active towards us. It journeys with us as a love which reveals itself to us in all seasons of our life. And crucially, it's not conditional on how worthy we are to be loved. It is a reflection of the character of God. And it's an overflow of who he is as he relates to his people. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't done it before, to track this word throughout the Old Testament because you find it comes up time and time again and particularly at really key moments through the story of the Old Testament. In the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in Moses, when he meets the Lord face to face in Exodus chapter 34 and God reveals who he is, he says this, I am the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. There's that word again, has said, and faithfulness. Well, Psalm 136 has this call and response in every verse, the response is God's love endures forever. And yet again, it's that word hesed. God's hesed love endures forever. It is right at the heart of who God is. The God we worship this morning is a God who loves us unconditionally, generously, and with unwavering commitment. Not because of who we are, but because that's who he is. 
And so with all of that in mind, as we come to this passage and we see that Naomi prays a blessing like this over Ruth and Orpah, what she's saying is, may you know this loyal love of God in your life too. The God who keeps his covenant promises, being faithful in love and compassion, may that characterize your life. And when we take a moment to remember the context in which she's prayed that, it's even more significant, isn't it? These are the first words that she said so far. And the context is in the midst of grief and suffering. And in amongst that heartache that they've experienced, Naomi knows and has experienced the character of God as a loving God. And she calls her daughters to lean on God. She prays a blessing that they might know that experience of who God is in their lives. Even with all that she's gone through, Naomi still calls upon God to be this loving God that he always has been and he always will be. And this is our God too, the God of Hesed, who is loyal to us in love, faithfulness, mercy, grace, and kindness all the days of our lives, no matter what we're going through in all circumstances. When we take a step back from this point in the story and look at the story of Ruth and Ahol, we see that actually even the origins of this story sets the scene for God to begin to reveal that Hesed love throughout. And actually, if you know the story well, you'll know that then the loving faithfulness of Boaz and even how the, the, the community in Bethlehem received them is a reflection of that. It allows God to reveal tenderly his love for them. And you know, that has often been my story too. In the moments where I have suffered or experienced loss, it's also been a place where I have known a greater measure of the love of God. Maybe that's been some of your experience too. Maybe in the people who journey alongside you in those moments, maybe in the alongside presence of God in those times. And I wonder, it's interesting that Naomi prays it over her daughters. And I wonder sometimes we need someone else to pray over us for us to recognize it and receive it again. To remind us that this is who God is and he's unwavering in this towards us. So I want to take a moment to pray that blessing over us this morning, that we might receive it again, whether we know the love of God and it is, characterizes our life day to day or whether it's new to us, all of us need to be reminded that this is who God is in our lives. So let me just pray this, pray this blessing over you. And you might want to close your, your eyes and put your hands out in front of you as a way of receiving that. May the Lord show you just how deeply and unconditionally he loves you this morning. May he show you how generous he is in lavishing his love upon you as a son and daughter. And may the Lord remind you and assure you that his commitment to you is unwavering, even when we waver all the days of our lives. Amen. So let's return to the story. So Hesed is the character of God, and we see it lived out in this family. In fact, I would say it forms this family. Hesed forms as family. So Naomi at this point has blessed her two daughters, and she's encouraged them to leave. They weep together. And as they're considering this goodbye, it is quite a big moment because it's likely a goodbye forever. They, there's not an easy way for them to keep in touch and commuting between Israel and Moab is not really the done thing. 
Orpah chooses to follow Naomi's advice, and so she kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, and she leaves. But Ruth, at this point, chooses not to leave. In fact, she, she holds on tight to Naomi. The word that she's used in verse 14 is the word clung. And that's the same word that we find in Genesis 2, describing marriage and the relationship in marriage. She binds herself to Naomi, that kind of level of depth and commitment. And what follows is actually a kind of a set of vows that you often do find in a marriage ceremony. She says, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And so this is such a deep and loving commitment that Ruth makes to Naomi. And I think it's important to note there's no sense into which this was an easy commitment for Ruth to make to Naomi. For, for one thing, Ruth was a Moabite. And for a Moabite to leave her own people and her own country to travel to Israel was to actually to put herself in a far more vulnerable position than she was already in. There's a theologian called Alicia Panganabin who wrote this. Ruth is the epitome of the most vulnerable member of Israelite society and our modern society. A poor foreign widow without any blood relatives in Israel and worst, a Moabite, one who is hated, looked upon with disdain and contempt due to ethnic and religious prejudice. So Ruth is not making an easy commitment by choosing to go with Naomi. And on top of that, she's committing to someone who's not going to be particularly enjoyable to be around at that moment. She, she changes, Naomi literally changes her name, which means lovely, to Mara, which means bitter. Such is her experience of life in her current state. She's so overcome with sorrow with what's happened to her family. And yet despite that, despite Ruth being a Moabite and committing in amongst grief, she still chooses to make this commitment to Naomi. So, so why? Why does she choose to make that commitment? I, well, I want to suggest that Naomi's way of life pointed towards this chesed of God, this loyal love of God. And actually, that it, was formed, it formed them as family in the years they were together. I am still learning how to be a dad. It's still a relatively new thing for me. And uh, one thing I'm learning is that once they get to a certain point, they just start mimicking everything that you do. And our older son, Micah, is starting to do that far more. And there's some things which are quite funny within that, and um, some things which are kind of embarrassing at the same time as well. Um, one of the things that we, we do, which is, for me, is kind of supposed to be just when him and I are on our own with no one else around. Um, but we, we do one of these things, which is um, when I'm taking him out of the bath and he's a bit cold, I wrap him in a towel that's nice and warm to try and kind of stop him from feeling cold. I distract him by making the noise, oh! And he got into the habit of doing that in response to me. So like doing this like big, oh! But then he started doing that in lots of other settings as well. When, whenever he had something that he was enjoying, so if he got an ice cream in public, then the face would, would crinkle up as well. Which is far more bold than I would ever be. Um, but that's, there's something about family that does that, isn't it? It forms us. We're formed by the people we journey with. It shapes us for better or worse. And Ruth spent 10 years with Naomi. She observed them as a family following God and trusting in his faithfulness, his hesed. It was such an integral part of Naomi's story that it became part of Ruth's story too. 
She knew the hesed of God, this generous, committed love in being part of this family. She experienced it. In fact, she reciprocated it back to them, to her husband and to Naomi at various points as Naomi herself names. And in fact, you see it clearly in the words that Ruth uses when she commits to Naomi. The climax of Ruth's commitments is a declaration, let your God be my God. Let your God, the God that you have embraced, I choose to embrace that God too, the one that you have modeled to me. Ruth encounters something of the God Naomi worships to the extent that she was willing to embrace the same faith herself. And in fact, her relationship with, with Naomi and choosing to embrace God mattered more to her than the risks that would come associated with her choosing to follow Naomi into this distant land, even though it might mean that she would be despised or persecuted in this new place. This commitment, this what she's experienced of God and what she knew of Naomi mattered more. And so here we find in this ordinary relationship the said of God on display in family. And when we discover this same love of God too, this same loyal love in our lives as we, as those who follow Jesus, have known and do know even today, it does change our loyalties too. As we dig into church community with others and encounter the said of God in the lives of those who are walking with Jesus around us, we begin to live like that with one another. We reflect that to each other. And actually, I think we begin to realize that we have far more in common with the people who are doing, we're doing that with, even than our biological family. Because has said, this love of God so characterizes who God is, and for those of us who follow Jesus, it redraws the boundary lines around family. But we do have to live as though that is true. It's quite a modern thing that we can kind of compartmentalize and privatize our faith, but, but in our time, it is very easy to do that, for it to become one small part of who we are. And in fact, it's much easier for us to be formed by things like Netflix or social media or a culture at work than it is for us to be formed by our faith and being part of the family of God, unless we consciously choose to prioritize it. And that's part of why we have the vision we have for community, because while this space together on a Sunday is so important in our faith, most of how we work out what it looks like to, to understand and live out through, the, through who God is with one another happens in the day-to-day -day life, in the stuff of day-to-day. -day. And while I can't, in this environment, speak to every one of you individually about what's going on with you and how it might look for you to follow Jesus in that, you can do that with a small group of others. My wife and I, Lindsay, we lead a community and have for a few years, and we purposely tried to set a rhythm which, which gives us the opportunity to do that together with others. So we meet every week in a three-weekly pattern. And because lots of us have young families, we try to set it up in a way which means that everyone has a chance to be formed on a regular basis. So each person, uh, and each adult anyway, has a, a chance at two weeks and three to have space to meet with others, to ask, be asked deep questions, to pray together, to open scripture, and to consider what it looks like to openly live our lives following Jesus. Because we need that kind of regularity. We need that rhythm. We need to be doing it day to day with one another so that it does form us and so that we understand and experience this said love of God in our lives. And so, so far we said the said is the character of God. said forms family, it forms this family of Naomi and Ruth. 
And finally, Hesed is our story. So coming back to the last few verses of this passage, Naomi and Ruth now arrive in Bethlehem. Naomi has been welcomed in, and we need to remember that this village was a small village. It was likely maybe 300 people in total. And so everyone literally did come out to, to meet them and welcome them. And at that point, Naomi begins to share all that's happened and the sense of loss, and she even blames God for some of what has happened to her. And we know at this point, the story has a long way to go, that this isn't the end. But what we are supposed to be drawn to is little glimpses of hope that we find, particularly towards the end. In verse 22, it says, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And the two things we're supposed to see from that is first, Ruth is true to her word. She has stayed with Naomi on a 10-day journey back to a new land for her and back to home for Naomi. And she has risked much. She's been introduced as Ruth the Moabite, immediately recognized as a foreigner. And Ruth will continue to show this loyal, loyal, faithful love to Naomi as the story unfolds, reflecting the hesed of God to Naomi and softening her heart. And second, these just few words right at the end, the kind of almost throwaway words, the barley harvest is beginning. And with that, we have whispers of promise. The famine is over. Spring is coming. Walter Brueggemann says, he's a theologian, particularly around the Old Testament, he says that every location and setting in this book point towards something beyond itself. Bethlehem, the barley harvest, the threshing floor, all of them are filled with deep spiritual significance. And so we read this anticipating with Ruth and Naomi in the midst of the unknowns of what's to come for them, that God will begin a redemptive work, a radical newness that is coming where there's been death before at the opening of a future for them and for Israel that was not there before. And as we read this book, and as we read ourselves into the story, we do so recognizing that this is our story too. This story draws us towards the said of God that we see on display so clearly through the work of Jesus. And just as there's that kind of shape that's popped up every now and then of, of what said means, with a triangle, I think, up here again in a second. We see that so clearly on display, those three elements of that in the life of Jesus. It's unconditional love. Jesus loves us without condition. In our faltering attempts, when we struggle to see what's coming ahead, Jesus showed us through his life, his death, and his resurrection an unwavering love for us while we were still completely lost. And that love endures through all seasons of our life. He is generous to generous beyond measure. In fact, he completely redefines what generosity is by opening up in himself space for humanity, by becoming human himself, by giving up everything. You can't get much more generous than that, even giving up his life. And now, Romans 8 says that we as his children get to share in all that Jesus owns. We are co-heirs with Christ. All that the Son of God has, he shares with us. How incredibly lovingly generous that is. And he's committed to us. He's committed to you with an enduring commitment, constantly presenting us before his Father as perfect and committed to do a slow, lifelong work with us to form us into his image so that we might be able to experience life as God intended it to be.
That is the Jesus that we know, who loves us so deeply. And so as I land, what is our response? How might we respond to this? As we reflect on the hesed of God in this story, and as we remind ourselves that this is our story too, well, the two things I think it draws out in me anyway is first, worship. Isn't our God so good? Isn't he so loving and generous to us? And for me, the natural response as I consider that is to worship him, to say thank you for loving us so consistently and so faithfully. And the other thing I think it draws out in me is what does it look like for me to witness that? Worship and witness. What is... As I, ref- as I receive that love again today, as I'm reminded of how deeply committed God is to me, how do I reflect that in my relationships with others? How, how loving and loyal am I to those I work with, to those in my family, as I go into this week? So I'd love to pray for us, just to close. Why don't you stand with me if you're able? So, Father God, I thank you that we learn again this morning something of who you are. And that when you say something about who you are, that's not like when we say something about who we are. Because we can say something and not do it. We can promise something and not keep it. But with you, God, who you say you are is who you are. It always has been. It always will be. Thank you that you are a deeply loyal, committed loving God and we experience that in our lives we have and we always will would we know that in a deeper way again this morning would it root in us more deeply than it has before and God would it be at such a natural overflow in our lives as we look to love others around us those in this room, those in our family, those that we work with and see from day to day, God, would the, your love, would your said love overflow into how we live with others? Would it be our witness? Would it mean that others desire to know you? Would it be the thing that draws them to know more? We receive your love afresh. We continue to worship you now.